Section 5 of The Theory of the Leisure Class. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lenny. The Theory of the Leisure Class by Thorsten Viblen. Second part of Chapter 3 Conspicuous Leisure. As seen from the economic point of view, leisure, considered as an employment, is closely allied in kind with the life of exploit, and the achievements which characterize a life of leisure, and which remain as its decorous criteria, have much in common with the trophies of exploit. But leisure, in the narrower sense, as distinct from exploit, and from any ostensibly productive employment of effort on objects which are of no intrinsic use, does not commonly leave a material product. The criteria of a past performance of leisure, therefore, commonly take the form of immaterial goods. Such immaterial evidences of past leisure are quasi-scholarly or quasi-artistic accomplishments, and a knowledge of processes and incidents which do not conduce directly to the furtherance of human life. So, for instance, in our time, there is the knowledge of the dead languages and the occult sciences, of correct spelling, of syntax and prosody, of the various forms of domestic music and other household art, of the latest properties of dress, furniture and equipage, of games, sports, and fancy-bred animals, such as dogs and racehorses. In all these branches of knowledge, the initial motive from which their acquisition proceeded at the outset, and through which they first came into vogue, may have been something quite different from the wish to show that one's time had not been spent in industrial employment. But unless these accomplishments had approved themselves as serviceable evidence of an unproductive expenditure of time, they would not have survived, and held their place as conventional accomplishments of the leisure class. These accomplishments may, in some sense, be classed as branches of learning. Beside and beyond these, there is a further range of social facts which shade off from the region of learning into that of physical habit and dexterity. Such are what is known as manners and breeding, polite usage, decorum, and formal and ceremonial observances generally. This class of facts are even more immediately and obstrusively presented to the observation, and they therefore more widely and more imperatively insisted on as required evidences of a reputable degree of leisure. It is worthwhile to remark that all that class of ceremonial observances which are classed under the general head of manners hold a more important place in the esteem of men during the stage of culture at which conspicuous leisure has the greatest vogue as a mark of reputability than at later stages of the cultural development. The barbarian of the quasi-peaceable stage of industry is notoriously a more high-bred gentleman in all that concerns decorum than any but the very exquisite among the men of a later age. Indeed, it is well known, or at least it is currently believed, that manners have progressively deteriorated as society has receded from the patriarchal stage. Many a gentleman of the old school has been provoked 
to remark regretfully upon the underbred manners and bearing of even the better classes in the modern industrial communities, and the decay of the ceremonial code, or as it is otherwise called, the vulgarization of life, among the industrial classes proper, has become one of the chief enormities of latter-day civilization in the eyes of all persons of delicate sensibilities. The decay which the code has suffered at the hands of a busy people testifies, all depreciation apart, to the fact that decorum is a product and an exponent of leisure-class life, and thrives in full measure only under a regime of status. The origin, or better, the derivation, of manners is no doubt to be sought elsewhere than in a conscious effort on the part of the well-mannered to show that much time has been spent in acquiring them. The proximate end of innovation and elaboration has been the higher effectiveness of the new departure in point of beauty or of expressiveness. In great part, the ceremonial code of the chorus usages owes its beginning and its growth to the desire to conciliate or to show goodwill, as anthropologists and sociologists are in the habit of assuming, and this initial motive is rarely, if ever, absent from the conduct of well-mannered persons at any stage of the later development. Manners, we are told, are in part an elaboration of gesture, and in part they are symbolical and conventionalized survivals representing former acts of dominance or of personal service or of personal contact. In large part, they are an expression of the relation of status, a symbolic pantomime of mastery on the one hand and of subservience on the other. Wherever at the present time the predatory habit of mind and the consequent attitude of mastery and of subservience gives its character to the accredited scheme of life, there the importance of all punctilias of conduct is extreme, and the assiduity with which the ceremonial observance of rank and titles is attended to approaches closely to the ideal set by the barbarian of the quasi-peaceful nomadic culture. Some of the continental countries afford good illustrations of this spiritual survival. In these communities, the archaic ideal is similarly approached as regards the esteem accorded to manners as a fact of intrinsic worth. The quorum set out with being symbol and pantomime, and with having utility only as an exponent of the facts and qualities symbolized. But it presently suffered the transmutation which commonly passes over symbolical facts in human intercourse. Manners presently came, in popular apprehension, to be possessed of a substantial utility in themselves. They acquired a sacramental character, in great measure independent of the facts which they originally prefigured. Deviations from the code of the quorum have become intrinsically odious to all men, and good breeding is, in everyday apprehension, not simply an adventitious mark of human excellence, but an integral feature of the worthy human soul. There are few things that so touch us with instinctive revulsion as a breach of decorum, and so far have we progressed in the direction of imputing intrinsic utility to the ceremonial observances of etiquette, that few of us, if any, can dissociate an offense against etiquette from a sense of the substantial unworthiness of the offender. A breach of faith may be condoned, but a breach of decorum cannot. Manners maketh man. Nonetheless, while manners have this intrinsic utility, 
in the apprehension of the performer and the beholder alike, this sense of the intrinsic rightness of decorum is only the proximate ground of the vogue of manners and breeding. Their ulterior, economic ground is to be sought in the honorific character of that leisure or non-productive employment of time and effort without which good manners are not acquired. The knowledge and habit of good form come only by long-continued use. Refined tastes, manners, habits of life are a useful evidence of gentility, because good breeding requires time, application, and expense, and can therefore not be compassed by those whose time and energy are taken up with work. A knowledge of good form is prima facie evidence that that portion of the well-bred person's life which is not spent under the observation of the spectator has been worthily spent in acquiring accomplishments that are of no lucrative effect. In the last analysis, the value of manners lies in the fact that they are the voucher of a life of leisure. Therefore, conversely, since leisure is the conventional means of pecuniary repute, the acquisition of some proficiency in decorum is incumbent on all who aspire to a modicum of pecuniary decency. So much of the honorable life of leisure as is not spent in the sight of spectators can serve the purposes of reputability only in so far as it leaves a tangible, visible result that can be put in evidence and can be measured and compared with products of the same class exhibited by competing aspirants for repute. Some such effect in the way of leisurely manners and carriage, etc., follows from simple persistent abstention from work, even where the subject does not take thought of the matter and studiously acquire an air of leisurely opulence and mastery. Especially does it seem to be true that a life of leisure in this way persisted in through several generations will leave a persistent, ascertainable effect in the conformation of the person and still more in his habitual bearing and demeanor. But all the suggestions of a cumulative life of leisure, and all the proficiency in decorum that comes by the way of passive habituation, may be further improved upon by taking thought and assiduously acquiring the marks of honorable leisure, and then carrying the exhibition of these adventitious marks of exemption from employment out in a strenuous and systematic discipline. Plainly, this is a point at which a diligent application of effort and expenditure may materially further the attainment of a decent proficiency in the leisure class properties. Conversely, the greater the degree of proficiency and the more patent the evidence of a high degree of habituation to observances which serve no lucrative or other directly useful purpose, the greater the consumption of time and substance impliedly involved in their acquisition, and the greater the resultant good repute. Hence, under the competitive struggle for proficiency in good manners, it comes about that much pains is taken with the cultivation of habits of decorum, and hence the details of decorum develop into a comprehensive discipline, conformity to which is required of all who would be held blameless in point of repute. And hence, on the other hand, this conspicuous leisure, of which the quorum is a ramification, grows gradually into a laborious drill and deportment and an education in taste and discrimination as to what articles of consumption are decorous 
and what are the decorous methods of consuming them. In this connection, it is worthy of notice that the possibility of producing pathological and other idiosyncrasies of person and manner by shrewd mimicry and a systematic drill have been turned to account in the deliberate production of a cultured class, often with a very happy effect. In this way, by the process vulgarly known as snobbery, a syncopated evolution of gentle birth and breeding is achieved in the case of a goodly number of families and lines of descent. The syncopated gentle birth gives results which, in point of serviceability as a leisure class factoring the population, are in no wise substantially inferior to others who may have had a longer but less arduous training in the pecuniary properties. There are, moreover, measurable degrees of conformity to the latest accredited code of the Pantilius as regards decorous means and methods of consumption. Differences between one person and another in the degree of conformity to the ideal in these respects can be compared and persons may be graded and scheduled with some accuracy and effect according to a progressive scale of manners and breeding. The award of reputability in this regard is commonly made in good faith on the ground of conformity to accepted canons of taste in the matters concerned, and without conscious regard to the pecuniary standing or the degree of leisure practiced by any given candidate for reputability. But the canons of taste, according to which the award is made, are constantly under the surveillance of the law of conspicuous leisure, and are indeed constantly undergoing change and revision to bring them into closer conformity with its requirements. So that, while the proximate ground of discrimination may be of another kind, still the pervading principle and abiding test of good breeding is the requirement of a substantial and patent waste of time. There may be some considerable range of variation in detail within the scope of this principle, but they are variations of form and expression, not of substance. Much of the courtesy of everyday intercourse is, of course, a direct expression of consideration and kindly goodwill, and this element of conduct has, for the most part, no need of being traced back to any underlying ground of reputability to explain either its presence or the approval with which it is regarded. But the same is not true of the code of properties. These latter are expressions of status. It is, of course, sufficiently plain to anyone who cares to see that our bearing towards menial and other pecuniary dependent inferiors is the bearing of the superior member in a relation of status, though its manifestation is often greatly modified and softened from the original expression of crude dominance. Similarly, our bearing towards superiors, and in great measure towards equals, expresses a more or less conventionalized attitude of subservience. Witness the masterful presence of the high-minded gentleman or lady, which testifies to so much of dominance and independence of economic circumstances, and which, at the same time, appeals with such convincing force to our sense of what's right and gracious. It is among this highest leisure class, who have no superiors and few peers, that the quorum finds its fullest and maturest expression. And it is this highest class, also, that gives the quorum that definite formulation which serves as a canon of conduct for the classes beneath. 
and there also the code is most obviously a code of status, and shows most plainly its incompatibility with all vulgarly productive work. A divine assurance, and an imperious complacence, as of one habituated to require subservience, and to take no thought for the morrow, is the birthright and the criterion of the gentleman at his best. And it is in popular apprehension, even more than that, for this demeanor is accepted as an intrinsic attribute of superior worth, before which the base-born commoner delights to stoop and yield. As has been indicated in an earlier chapter, there is reason to believe that the institution of ownership has begun with the ownership of persons, primarily women. The incentives to acquiring such property have apparently been 1. A propensity for dominance and coercion. 2. The utility of these persons as evidence of the prowess of the owner. 3. The utility of their services. Personal service holds a peculiar place in the economic development. During the stage of quasi-peaceful industry, and especially during the earlier development of industry within the limits of this general stage, the utility of their services seems commonly to be the dominant motive to the acquisition of property in persons. Servants are valued for their services. But the dominance of this motive is not due to a decline in the absolute importance of the other two utilities possessed by servants. It is rather that the altered circumstance of life accentuate the utility of servants for this last-named purpose. Women and other slaves are highly valued, both as an evidence of wealth and as a means of accumulating wealth. Together with cattle, if the tribe is a pastoral one, they are the usual form of investment for a profit. To such an extent may female slavery give its character to the economic life under the quasi-peaceful culture that the women even comes to serve as a unit of value among peoples occupying this cultural stage, as for instance in Homeric times. Where this is the case, there need be little question but that the basis of the industrial system is chattel slavery, and that the women are commonly slaves. The great, pervading human relation in such a system is that of master and servant. The accepted evidence of wealth is the possession of many women, and presently also of other slaves, engaged in attendance on their master's person, and in producing goods for him. A division of labor presently sets in, whereby personal service and attendance on the master becomes the special office of a portion of the servants, while those who are wholly employed in industrial occupations proper are removed more and more from all immediate relation to the person of their owner. At the same time, those servants whose office is personal service, including domestic duties, come gradually to be exempted from productive industry carried on for gain. This process of progressive exemption from the common run of industrial employment will commonly begin with the exemption of the wife or the chief wife. After the community has advanced to settled habits of life, wife capture from hostile tribes becomes impracticable as a customary source of supply. Where this cultural advance has been achieved, the chief wife is ordinarily of gentle blood, and the fact of her being so will hasten her exemption from vulgar employment. 
the manner in which the concept of gentle blood originates, as well as the place which it occupies in the development of marriage, cannot be discussed in this place. For the purpose in hand, it will be sufficient to say that gentle blood is blood which has been ennobled by protracted contact with accumulated wealth or unbroken prerogative. The women with these antecedents is preferred in marriage, both for the sake of a resulting alliance with her powerful relatives, and because a superior worth is felt to inhere in blood, which has been associated with many goods and great power. She will still be her husband's chattel, as she was her father's chattel before her purchase, but she is at the same time of her father's gentle blood, and hence there is a moral incongruity in her occupying herself with the debasing employments of her fellow-servants. However completely she may be subject to her master, and however inferior to the male members of the social stratum in which her birth has placed her, the principle that gentility is transmissible will act to place her above the common slave. And so soon as this principle has acquired a prescriptive authority, it will act to invest her, in some measure, with that prerogative of leisure, which is the chief mark of gentility. Furthered by this principle of transmissible gentility, the wife's exemption gains in scope, if the wealth of her owner permits it, until it includes exemption from debasing menial service, as well as from handicraft. As the industrial development goes on, and property becomes massed in relatively fewer hands, the conventional standard of wealth of the upper class rises. The same tendency to exemption from handicraft, and in the course of time from menial domestic employments, will then assert itself as regards the other wives, if such there are, and also as regards other servants in immediate attendance upon the person of their master. The exemption comes more tardily the remoter the relation in which the servant stands to the person of the master. End of second part of chapter 3